Boy, I'm happy to be back with you. Good to have you, Pastor. I like eating goat much as the next guy. <laughs> we had some camel this time. Yeah. Camel's really good, by the way. No joke. Yeah. You got to make... <laughs> You gotta make it right. Uh, it's, it's, it's really sweet. Uh, it's really nice, yeah. Uh, and uh, eat it on Wednesday, hump day. Yeah. Okay, I'll be here all day. Uh, oh boy. <laughs> uh, so uh, as Wendy, was, uh, Wendy and Melanie and the family were working with uh, the kiddos in the in Misery Slum and Christlike Academy and then at Indorasha, the feeding program, and then with the ladies in the churches. Um, I was with a couple of other brothers and we were, uh, we were teaching in uh, Archer's Post, um, which is in central uh, Kenya, and then uh, further northwest in a place called Malalal. Uh, and these places uh, are not like the rest of Kenya uh, where we are. Uh, this is a place that, in fact, they say that this isn't Kenya. Uh, this is kind of the, the uh, frontier. And uh, so there's lots of tribal beliefs and, and things to overcome. And uh, so we had a great time teaching them biblical interpretation, hermeneutics, uh, how to understand uh, what the Bible is saying and be able to teach. And, and so uh, with that in mind, uh, I was really happy to come across uh, Exodus chapter 32, and I'll ask you to turn your Bibles there. That will be our main text for today, uh, the story of the golden calf. Um, and in this story, uh, in this true story from the Word of God, we see that the people of God have been rescued from Egypt. And they are, they are now moving to, towards a land that God had promised to their forefathers. And as they are moving in that direction, God brings them to a, a, a pinnacle, a pivotal place on, the Mount si on Mount Sinai. And as God comes down on the mountain, he is going to give them instructions on how to be his people. There is no written law at this point. There is no uh, real communion, communication between the God of heaven and his people. So far, they have had some kind of interaction with God. They've seen him work his uh, miracles They've seen him uh, create 10 major plagues that, that unfolded in front of them, some mainly to the people of Egypt. They have now been led in the wilderness by uh, a cloud of fire and a cloud of smoke. And it is the presence of God that is providing for them as they are going through this wilderness. And God takes them in a miraculous way through the Red Sea they celebrate there, and it brings them to this place, Mount Sinai. And so as Moses goes up the mountain, we hear and see a grand spectacle of God's presence. We see that the mountain shaking and fire and smoke and the blowing of a trumpet, uh, a great sound that, that, that shakes the innards of the people so that they are afraid to even go up the mountain. And while Moses is on the mountain, we hear God speaking the Ten Commandments, and beyond. He's speaking the law to the people in a way that they can, uh, they can hear. And so as we approach the story in, in Exodus chapter 32, the people of God have heard God's word, God's plan for them of how they are to interact with them. 
And it is not just the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are, are the foundation. But there are other laws that God is expressing when he's speaking uh, on top of the mountain. And those laws are uh, Exodus chapter 20, the first law, that there is to be one God that they worship, the, the God that brought them out of Egypt. The second law says they're not to fashion any kind of graven image, any kind of thing to represent God or God's and worship them. And then the laws go down the rest of the Ten Commandments, and then we see laws that have to do about worship, how to sacrifice, how not to sacrifice. We, then we see laws of justice, how people are to interact in a way that is honoring to God, and it is fulfilling in humanity. And so these laws, there, there's a lot of them, and that brings us to from chapter 20 to chapter 32. And here in 32, Moses is on the mountain, and he is going to get the hard copy of what God has said. He's taken up two stone tablets, and God is now writing on these tablets. And Moses says, I'm going to be a while, and then he's going to come back. Well, we reach day 40, and there is no Moses. And so the people become greatly concerned because Moses said he was coming back. But no longer do they have Moses. They don't have Moses to, to stand in front of them and to intercede before this God who is on the mountain, to speak with him and to explain what is being said and done and understand the world around them. But they also don't have the presence of God. The presence of God has gone before them and led them where they were going. So they are very real, in a very real way, they feel leaderless and lost at the base of this mountain. What are we going to do? And it's been a minute. Moses, they're thinking, should have come back already. He's been gone for 40 days. And this idea of 40, it may have been 40 days, it may have been more or less. Oftentimes that number 40 is like a, a, a length of time. It was a, a big time that he was gone. That's what the Bible is saying. And it seemed like he ought to be back by now. And they are concerned that maybe something has happened to him. And so they call on Aaron. That's where we are in the story today. Verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves, from, uh, gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! <laughs> Get up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, to the Lord. And they rose up early the next morning and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. <laughs> The people are now coming together. They are scared. And they call 
for, Mo, for Aaron. And they said, Aaron, do something about this. Make something for us. Now, Aaron is kind of on the spot here, to be honest. These people, some, some translations have the people being a little more heavy-handed than, than maybe exactly what the, the, the ESV says here. But they are kind of impelling him, compelling him to do something about this. And it really seems like Aaron is trying to put them off. He said, basically, if you'll give me all your gold, then we'll make, a, we'll make uh, what you're asking for. And he's thinking maybe they won't want to spend their wealth on this idea they have. But he's surprised that they do it quickly. <laughs> they just gather all this stuff. And so he starts the, the work of, of drawing out what this figure's supposed to be, and they, they build this this golden calf, this golden calf. And, and in verse 7, we pick up the story and it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, for, now therefore, let me alone, for my, mat, my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Woe is right. Woe to the children of Israel, for they are about to be decimated by the God of the mountain. God desires to consume them, to consume them with fire. As we read these verses, we have to say, is this it's a little much, right? What is really wrong with the golden calf? After all, it does make sense, right? It's pragmatic. You can't see your God. You want to worship. There's no one to lead you in worship. So let's build a golden calf. I think what's surprising in this story is, let me ask you this question. Which of the Ten Commandments are they violating? You know, number one is what you would think. But you know, when he, when he says gods here, you created one about your gods, it's the word Elohim. The word Elohim is a plural form of God, and it's the same word that's used in Genesis 1.1. And God created, that's Elohim, that, and God's created. It is a, a magnificent, it's a big word for the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's not... They are not calling out for God. At least Aaron is not leading them in the direction where they're saying, let's worship the gods from over there of Egypt. He's saying, let us worship Jehovah. Let's worship God. 
Let's have a feast for him. And what we're going to do is have a representation of him, this golden calf. And the people are down with that because the golden calf, they remember that. That's part of their, their culture. That, that's Egypt talk. Because when you have a golden calf, when you have a calf to worship, to see and to make a part of your festivities, it is a picture of God's power and fertility. And so it is, it is a promise that God is with you and powerful his presence, but also that he's going to make you live well and large in this land. And so they think they're being faithful to Jehovah. Let's make this thing that reminds us of this God because we can't see that God anymore. The, the choir director is not there to teach us the songs. And what are we doing? We're going to create something and be really good worshipers. And you know what? We're so faithful to that. I don't care. You can take all the money out of my pockets. You can take my gold. We'll throw it all in there because we are all in for worship. The problem isn't that they aren't good worshipers that they don't want to worship. The, the, the problem isn't that they are worshiping the wrong God or gods. The problem is they're doing it the wrong way. The wrong way. Worshiping the wrong way. That seems a little tough, isn't it, for God to say, I'm going to destroy you because you're worshiping the wrong way? They were worshiping wrongly. They had borrowed the worship form from the Egyptians. You know, the, the, the language of the children of Israel at the mountain is la language that has to do with marriage, covenant relationship. And they're saying, okay, we're going to worship that God but we're going to make this image here about fertility. And so when it says that they, uh, they get up the next day to worship and to play, this is like an erotic, sexual kind of play. They were, they were losing themselves. That is not the God that they had heard speak from the mountain. That's not how that God reacts. That's not how he calls his people to worship. And already, because of the golden calf, their practices are in following with this new kind of worship. And it's a departure from the covenant relationship with God. Are you following me? Yes, so the way we worship is as important as what we worship. There's never, there's a great picture uh, in literature that shows us the destructive nature of the wrong kind of worship. And it comes from Marvel Comics. <laughs> uh, Dr. Otto Gunther Octavius. Some of you know him as Doc Ock. Yeah. Doc Ock uh, is part of the, like the, the Spider-Man series. He's around Spider-Man. And uh, he is a nuclear physicist who creates these four arms that uh, are a, a, a harness that he puts on his body, and then it connects to his brain so that he can like control these arms. And it's very practical, very helpful, because he is a nuclear physicist, and they allow him to work without his own hands, but to use these special tentacles, these like octopus arms, in order to, to work with the radioactive material. Now, something really tragic happens in his life. He finds himself responsible in some way, or he feels like he's responsible for his mother's death. 
And so he becomes very angry and he begins to lose himself and his, he, he takes his mind off his work. And when he does that, he has an accident with these arms and there is a, some kind of nuclear reaction that then fuses those arms to him permanently. And so those arms become a part of him, literally a part of him. They cannot be removed from him. And these arms then take on a life of their own. It's as if they tap into that anger, into that trouble within his mind. And then they even are speaking to him and they're working on their own to dubious means. And he at first is able in some ways to fight against them, but then he's overtaken by the mind of the arms. It's, it's a tragic story. The man who made the arms is now the one who is being controlled by the arms. So this is the problem of a new kind of worship. Is that when we create a new form of worship, that form then changes who we are. James K. Smith in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, he, he speaks of the work of worship in the church is identity shaping. The work of the people in worship is identity shaping. It's formative. The rituals of faith are formative to making us God's people. I was at the Jamboree and I was visiting uh, with some of, our, some of the Jam counselors and we were just celebrating as, as we've already done at our church how God provided for them. If you remember at the beginning of the summer they were kicked out of their, they had to, to leave their, uh, their housing uh, because some of them came down with COVID and it looked like that Jam was going to be shut down altogether and then God miraculously provided Miracle Farm, big shout out to Miracle Farm and so all of them got to stay out there and I said, hey brother, tell me how how all this went. Like, how was it staying out there at Miracle Farm? He said, you don't understand. It, it changed everything because we were out there. He said, tell me what you mean. He said, well, when we were out there, we were forced to be together all the time. He said, if we had been at that other location, we're introverts. And so all of us would like find our little place and we would sequester ourselves and we wouldn't be interacting with anybody and we would have missed so much. He said, I have had a counselor say to me, if we don't do it the way we did it this year and force us to be in community, we're not coming back. Because that's the thing that, that we really needed that we didn't want. You see, what happens is Oftentimes, our, the things that we love, especially in our generation, they need to be practical, pragmatic. They need to be, be the most efficient thing. But really, God is very inefficient with us. The children of Israel could have taken April to get to the promised land, but instead they took a lifetime. Why? Because God was going to form them into his people. And a quick trip to the promised land would not have yielded something special in them, something they needed to be. And you will find in your life, that, as I find in mine, that God takes this time with us. And that, it, that we need some formation. Worship, the liturgy of the church, the work of the church is formative for us. There are, there are two 
two aspects in the first and second commandment. The, the first one is love God. The second one is that your focus has to be God. The second is it's a prohibition against making something with your hands. And as we read down, we see as they make sacrifices, they said, now when you make an altar, it needs to be from unhewn stones. That means you just grab rocks and you pile them together. You don't cut things up and make them fashioned by your hand. It's so that you will worship the thing that you made by your hands. But you will see that it's just a place to worship. These folks are, are, are worshipers. And what we find is we are naturally worshipers. We are naturally worshipers. But what are you worshiping? And how are you worshiping? This is sometimes easier to tell when you are in a different culture. So when I was in Archer's Post, we, we kept getting questions like these about prophecy. They wanted to know about prophecy. How can you tell the future? Uh, one, one of the big pastors in our group was saying that he predicted uh, COVID. Well, not exactly COVID, but he said, the Lord told me that there'd be a sifting of the church in 2020. And this is what he's done. And so he went on this big thing about prophecy and everybody was interested in prophecy. Then we we're kind of scratching our head. Why, what's the big deal about this prophecy? And so we really warned them, like, you need to be careful. God has revealed himself in his word. And if you're looking towards prophecies and, and understanding the future, you're in a dangerous place because that's not what the scriptures are talking about. That is not, not the kind of worship God is talking about. Then we go to Malalal and we're meeting with these folks and immediately what's on their minds is the interpretation of dreams. And so they're asking, how do we interpret our dreams? And we have these dreams and God's telling us things and we want to get it right. And so at first I'm saying to myself, I'm saying to them, it's like, well, how do you know how to interpret dreams? Like, like what kind of system do you use? Or, or does somebody have to have a spiritual gift? Because we don't see the spiritual gift of interpretation in the New Testament. It's like, what is this thing you're talking about? And, and, I, and so I asked the question, how do you interpret? One, one of the young people said, well, I Google it. Yes. I said, that's really going to be great. That's, that's, that's trouble. You know, and it's easy for us. We're looking at that going, that is, they're so off. Like, come on. Think about it. That doesn't make sense. But you see, they're coming from a, a tribal belief. And in, among uh, one of their tribes, the Trakana, what they do, uh, and the Samburu, they get, they get religious people will gather a goat and they'll open up and put the entrails out and they'll read the entrails so they'll know what the future is. Why? Because they're afraid of the future. Why do you have to prophesy? Because you're afraid of the future. You want to know what the future is. You want to have some kind of control in your life. And so we get to preach to them, you don't have to be afraid of the future because our God is in control. And he works out all things for good according to his will, according to, those, according to those he loves and are called according to his purposes. So you, don't, you need to trust in God. Don't trust in your dreams. Don't trust in your prophecies. 
trust in God. This is the spiritual form of worship. Now here's where I'm getting in trouble. Because as I'm sitting with our brothers and sisters and Malala, I look back at the church here in America. And it's helpful to be in a different culture. And I look, what kind of things seem so weird to them if they look back at us? So here we go. Strange practices. I think what they see as they look back at the church that's so different is that we are, we are a church, we are a people who seek the good life. And one of the ways we seek the good life is through leisure, play. And so when we think about the good life, what it's supposed to be, our passions are to be, to find ways to entertain and enjoy ourselves. And so when we think about, now, I'm not saying it's not good to rest. I'm not saying it's not good to go on vacation. But what I'm saying is, when you look at that, of our life and pursuit of leisure, has it crowded out the liturgy of the church, of church life? Our, our pursuit of leisure. Uh, another, another thing that just stands out totally different from the church that's, that I just came from is that we have kind of a unique uh, love and almost veneration, not for elders like in, in many cultures, but for our children. And so we love our children and our grandchildren and we place a very high value on their success and what their needs are. And so we look at maybe their extracurricular activities and that becomes like, I can skip out on the liturgy of the church, the work of worship, because this thing is more important. I know I'm getting in trouble already. I know some of y'all are wagging your heads at me side. Loving your family is right, and it is the work of the people. And as heads of households, we need to care for our families and raise them up in the ways of God. But be careful if our worship of God is interrupted by a different kind of worship, a different form of worship. We, we are, we are a, this is different to, about us too, we are a consumer kind of people, aren't we? It's, it is our culture. We're stuck with it, right? I mean, turn on the TV, look on social media, wherever you go, there are these images that keep coming back at us that say, there is a better life, and it's really saying, you don't have it. And you should do this, and you're going to have really white teeth. I mean, think about your teeth. They're not very white. And all the good-looking people have white teeth. You're dingy. So there needs to be some change. There needs to be some money, some capital outlaid so that you can have the good life. I mean, companies like Nike and 
all the beer brands, they're, they are promoting a certain kind of life and well-being. And if you only consume this thing, your life is going to be better. And you know what? We are, that, those messages come to us all the time, and we begin to buy into it. I mean, even, I saw a, a real estate video. Pardon my real estate people, but... And it was a, a, a video about this ranch that was for sale. And I want to tell you, it was beautiful. You go in and it pans and there's these people, it's presumably the owners, and they have friends and they're laughing and they're drinking and they're having a good time. Their kids are like playing hide and go seek and they're so happy. Those kids, they're just so happy. And then it, it, I think there's a drone and it takes us down and there's a, a pond down there and where they were just eating now they're fishing on the pond and they're having just a, a beautiful time and then they run back up and they go into the house and there there at the front of the house are all these little shoes they're laid out you know and as I'm watching that I'm thinking to myself man I've always wanted a pond and they have so many friends that are so happy. I wish I had friends like that. And, and then I see all those shoes, and I think to myself, my kids never know where their shoes are. Honestly, I began to think, I wonder if I could afford that. Like, what would it take me to get into that house? And we, start, we start acting like that towards everything in our life, even church. There are things that are better someplace else, or easier, more practical, more enjoyable. But God has called us to this. He's called us to this. He's called us to regularly come together and do those things of liturgy, of, of practice and faith. Things like confession and prayer and fasting and tithes and offerings. Regular attendance. He's called us to service. He's called us to actually submit to each other. That's not an easy commercial. Right? That's a hard one to sell. But those harder things, those things that are in many ways impractical and not convenient are the things that form us. They make us have a new identity. It's the way of the people of God. It's the way of the church. So the golden calf. It's a real problem. My question to you, brothers and sisters, I know you're here, so I'm preaching to the choir maybe, but what is your golden calf? Do you have one? Is there something that you need to burn up <laughs> and cast down? So let us all, as the people of God, recognize that we are easily moved towards the way our culture has directed us. And that we all have passions and we all worship all kinds of things. 
Today, I hope you can identify what are those things that are calling my name? And can I say no to them? Can prioritize the real work of the people of God. It forms us into be his people, to be like him. And will we see the pleasure of God smiling down on his people as we walk together? And an oftentimes uncomfortable, long journey that it isn't easy or practical, but is good. And it blesses our souls. And it's the way to walk with the king. Let's pray.